Yeah, it's 4th of July, and we have, with all of our faults and all of our problems and all of our weaknesses and things that you can complain and moan about here in the United States of America, we still live in the greatest country on this earth. And, and we have much to be thankful for as Americans. And, you know, I was sitting there thinking, because I always try and make you know, mention of it, it seems like 4th of July is almost sliding off into, you know, one of those holidays that we... we don't even celebrate anymore. It seems sad to me because I love my country. But it is, it is one of those things that when we look back historically on the 4th of July, on our Independence Day, you know, you can come up with a couple of questions. And one of them that seems to come to mind is, is why is America great? Because it is great. And, and there's no question about that. We are 4.5% of the world's population. I don't know if you know that or not, but the United States of America, us as Americans, that's all we represent. It's a very tiny portion, really. And yet we control about 40% of the world's wealth. And when you look at the, the country, if you look at the things that this country has been responsible for, little simple things like airplane travel, um, telephones, telegraphs, those things that were the precursor of the Internet, the Internet came from the United States, global positioning satellites, you know, there's a lot of good things that have come out. And furthermore, more than 75% of the world's humanitarian aid across the globe comes from this country. So early, amen? You should. You should be thankful to be an American. Do we have issues? Of course we have issues. We have some monumental issues. But we still live in a land that has freedom like no other place on the planet Earth. And that freedom, understood by our forefathers, by the founders of this nation, I believe not only did they have a very clear understanding of where that came from, and we'll get there in a moment, I just want to share for a few minutes on the 4th of July, on our Independence Day. They understood it. it our, our blessings don't come from our wealth. Our blessings don't come from our democratic system of government. As good as it is, it's got its faults and its weaknesses. We have three branches of government. It's unique in the entire world. Nobody else has what we have. We have a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. And those branches are supposed to have independent function, and they are supposed to be checks and balances against one another. That kind of failed us a week or so ago. That's an issue. But it's still a wonderful country that we live in. You know, if you look at the things that we have and look at the things that we are blessed to be a part of, we, we can ask ourselves, why, why are we exceptional? You know, people very often look back on the founders and then because, unfortunately, uh, we're no longer influenced by things like actually reading books, we go do the cliff note version by watching the Discovery Channel or the Learning Channel and a revisionist history is being put forth. And if you believe that revisionist history as it's being put forth today, then all of our founders were a bunch of drunken deists who did all kinds of evil things and took advantage of everybody. That is absolutely a lie. They were, by and large, Christians who understood that this country was going to be very different if they derived that new form of government from a source that was above all other sources of, of information on this earth. And the reason that we know that is when you read the Declaration of Independence, it has four very specific cases in it where they appealed to someone higher than themselves. 
And in fact, the Constitutional Convention, when it was finally convened and the Constitution was actually drafted, it flowed out of a prayer meeting that was called by Benjamin Franklin after they failed to write the Constitution. They couldn't get there, and he said, so you know what we need to do? We need to get together and pray. That's where the Constitution came from. It was after that that James Madison, the large, uh, largest, uh, in essence, author of that wonderful document, put forth the truths that are in it. But if you read the Declaration of Independence, if you go to Washington, D.C., you cannot do that. The print is very tiny. It's extremely difficult to read. But if you get a copy of it that's in something that you can read, you'll find that in the very beginning of it, it says, the laws of nature and of nature's God. It begins that way. They're not appealing to another government. They're not appealing to the sensibilities of Europe. They were not appealing to Voltaire or Rousseau or Dante. They were appealing to God himself. They understood that there had to be somebody over this whole thing, otherwise it was going to fall into the hands of men, and if it becomes about man's opinion, you're going to get about, in our case right now, 313 million of them, and most people will have two or three. So they understood that to form a more perfect union, there had to be a basis for that. They appealed first to the laws of nature and to nature, nature's God. They further went on to say in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. That was something very new in the world. Because the world at that time was embroiled in the heinous act of slavery. All men being created equal meant that all men had equal value. And it says, goes on, they're endowed by their creator. They were not endowed by the government. They weren't endowed by some piece of paper that God had imprinted that into every single individual and that the creator was responsible for every human being and we were responsible, therefore, to him. Endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They would go on further to say that they appealed to the supreme judge of the world with all rectitude of our intentions. In other words, everything we're thinking, we know that there's a judge greater than us. And he's judging the affairs of all humankind. And so they appealed to the one judge. Look at these things. Nature's God, the creator, the supreme judge. These are all biblical principles. They didn't come from the age of enlightenment in Europe. And fourth and finally, that we, with firm reliance on the protection of not the military, not the government itself, but divine providence, that we mutually pledge to each other, believing that God had an obligation because he was the creator to protect mankind and all that is this earth. We pledge each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So when someone says, you know, well, we're, we're a secular nation, today that's unfortunately largely true. But it's not the intent. It's not what our founding documents even say. That is a construct of revisionist history. 
And so where we started and what we actually celebrate, if you've ever seen that wonderful painting by Jonathan Turnbull of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, some of the people in there didn't actually sign it. But if you look at it, when they met together, uh, it, it, was, it was for the purpose of saying, look, above all other things, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That there is a God, that he's the creator, he's the supreme judge, and under divine providence we put our trust in him. Oh, that America would get that today. Because what we need to do is return to those moorings. We need to return to those principles Because where we are is exactly what it says in the book of Judges. Joshua brings them into the land, and it would be just one generation later where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need to get back to doing what's right in God's eyes. If we want him to bless our nation, you see, just as the 33rd Psalm says, blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Amen? You realize what that simple sentence declares, because there's a very deep truth in it. Blessed is a nation, a group of people joined together with common purpose and function, whose God, the one whom we worship. You see, it's not about government. It's about who you worship. Because here in this country, we worship money, we worship power, we worship prosperity. We need to to get back to worshiping God. Because he alone is worthy of worship. Amen. You should clap. Because that's what we need to do. Our problem is not that we don't have enough wealth. We have 40% of the world's wealth. We've got plenty of money. It's not that we don't have enough food. We have plenty of food. We could feed the entire world with what comes out of America. That's the truth. It's not that our government is so messed up. It's the fact that we worship things other than God. That's the problem. And in doing so, the remainder of that sentence there in the 12th verse of the 33rd Psalm says, whose God is the Lord. That word means master. God calls the shots. He tells us what we're supposed to do. That is what your Bible is. That's what we've come to study today. We need to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And if we'll do that, then I believe there is a very bright future yet that lies ahead. But it will be a future that calls out to the world and calls to our own countrymen for repentance and revival and renewal. That's what America needs. We need to turn away from sin and towards the Lord. And we need to let him govern the affairs of men again. We need to rely on his divine providence again. We need to recognize him as creator of all life, creator of the stars, creator of the heavens, and it all belongs to him. And we need to get back to saying, look, there is a God who designed us and he put his moral law in our hearts and we follow him. That's why we study God's Word. Because that's where we glean these truths from. The founders knew that. That's what they wrote into the Declaration of Independence. 
as we begin to study, we're going to pick up, we're going to begin chapter 4 today, just six verses, and we're going to pray. But what we're going to pray for really is, Lord, fill us with your truth. Cause us to see the world around us the way you want us to see. We, we need to get back to doing things God's way, family. We do that. We've got some life left. If we don't do that, I, I shudder to think where we're headed. Would you pray? Father God, we have come again this afternoon, this glorious day. We've gathered in your house on the first day of the week to study your inerrant truth, Lord. Just to listen to your voice, Lord, as we read your word, as we give it sense and meaning, drag it from these pages and place it into our hearts. God, help us to understand and know what the Spirit would say to us. God, we're so grateful for the truth of your word, and we pray now as we read and as we uh, spend this time together that you from heaven would take your word and make us alive through it. We ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus, all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Part one this morning of a study I've entitled The Beauty of Unity. And so as you're there in Ephesians chapter 4, we now are shifting gears, and it's very important, and it is the context without even the words of the first few verses that we need to turn our attention to first. Because here's the problem, and Mahatma Gandhi said it very, very, very well. He was actually questioned by some people who were viewing the work of the church in India as the church, the Christian church, was trying to win converts to Christ, he was asked, he said, what's the problem with Christianity? You know what his reply was? Christians. That Christians were the problem with Christianity. It's important to us today to understand exactly what he was getting at. He was not a believer, but he had it spot on. Because the world has the same exact response today in large part. The reason the world looks at the church and says, well, why isn't gay marriage okay? It's because they can point to the divorce rate of the church and say, Christians don't value marriage. Why does it matter? They can point to the incidence of alcoholism and say, why should we care about what they say? They're also a bunch of drunks. They can look at drug abuse and tax evasion. They can look at how we treat each other. And when they see us not acting out, living out, walking the walk, and we're just talking the talk, the first word that comes out of their mouth is, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And so Paul, having laid a doctrinal foundation in the first three chapters, now shifts gears and he takes us to the applicational or the duty that we have in Christ. The first part of the the book deals with those riches that we have. Now we're going to come to our responsibilities. You see, to be given this wealth, we now are going to need to do something with it. It's not meant to be standing there in your bank waiting for you to have it all to yourself, we are supposed to then go and affect our world for the cause of Christ, with the gospel. And so we have this incredible wealth. Now we need to take and have a wonderful walk. 
we also need now to understand what he's getting at. Notice what he says here in verse 1. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, And I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He reminds us, he says, look, I'm writing from prison. I'm not writing from some mansion somewhere. This isn't a lofty idea that I just came up with because I've got all kinds of leisure time. I myself am suffering for the cause of Christ. I beseech you, I cry out to you, I agonize with you. I say to you, look, we need to take this stuff and live it. That you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. How were we called? We were called by grace and through faith. Amen? We've been brought near by the blood of the Lamb. You did not pave your own way. You're not righteous in and of yourself. If you're here today and you are a child of God, you have been brought there by God's grace and through faith. That faith we saw in chapter 2 is not even from you. It's also a gift from God so that none of us can go around bragging about how much faith we have. And that's why God loves us and we love him. It says, I beseech you, therefore, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then he goes on to say several things to us with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so, these first three verses here in the fourth chapter, we, we switch from the doctrinal section to the section that speaks of our duty. And I want to give you just a little bit of an outline here of what lies ahead. Because it's very important. You see, we had our riches already described to us. We are fabulously wealthy. Our portfolio is full in grace. Amen? If you've been with us in this entire study, you are rich beyond measure because of who you are in Christ Jesus. And in fact, so wealthy are you that you will receive the inheritance of the saints, which is the glories of God. You're rich beyond any imagination. Now, you may not feel that today. You may be struggling even now in physical things here on this earth. But at the end of the day, you take your last breath, say hello, Jesus. Amen? Good place to be. It's the only place to be. And so you are rich, and the first three chapters tells us that. And then, now we get to this route that we're going to take. And so he begins here in the first 16 verses of chapter 4 to talk about the unity that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ, because we're all saved by grace and through faith. Amen? There isn't anybody, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you've committed your life to Christ, you did nothing to deserve it. Amen? It's purely a work of God's grace. It is his mercy showered upon you. You're, you're not just super fantastic and so, well, I'll choose you. God's not getting a bargain when he gets you, okay? He works at a functional deficit every day because he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. God goes, oh, Jeff, again. But I love him. Because we do mess up from time to time, amen? So we can't brag about there being this hierarchy. Well, you know, those Christians, they're like super Christians. We're supposed to be one in Christ. As we get to chapter, the middle of chapter 4 and verse 17, we'll switch gears. and it'll, it'll function in this way of drawing attention to the purity that we're supposed to have because of who we are in Christ. 
Man, is that an unpopular subject in the body of Christ today. You mean I'm supposed to live a sinless life? Yes, you're supposed to be rotten at sinning, okay? Amen. You're supposed to be lousy, terrible sinners. You're not supposed to be good at sinning. When people look at your life, they're supposed to be going, Man, you, you're like a terrible sinner. By meaning you're not any good at it. And yet, so much of the church, can you really tell any difference between the church and the world? You look at, maybe you have some of those Christian friends, it's like, they're partying just as hardy as, you know, the, the, the worst decrepit person that you know that doesn't know Jesus. Let me tell you how it works. You get in the car, you leave service, oh yeah, the message was awesome, and you know, I learned this truth, and honey, you are rotten to the core, and you begin to talk to your family in a way that you shouldn't. You talk to your wife, and you talk to your children, or maybe you talk to your husband, then you get home, and you're screaming and yelling at each other, well, how come you parked that in the driveway, and the neighbors are coming out, and they're wondering what all the ruckus is, and you're using words that they don't use in places you shouldn't go. And then you're talking at the lunch table at work. Cause, yeah, did you see that movie? Yeah, can you believe how hot she is? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, he's a real hunk. It's another way of saying lust. You get what I'm saying? Because the body of Christ is supposed to be different than the world. You've been redeemed with blood of the Lamb. It's more valuable than gold and silver. And so we're supposed to act differently, talk differently, walk differently, think differently, function in the world differently, pure. We're also supposed to be harmonious. Back to my little story about good old Mahatma. Mr. Gandhi. How many people in the world, maybe you yourself have said this, maybe you're here today, I don't know, this whole Christian thing, I don't think I want to be one of those. They can't even get along with each other. There's no harmony. There's no unity. I have a friend who actually lives in Zambia. Has a ministry to youth there. And it is so bad in Africa that literally the warring factions sit on opposite sides of the aisle. It's like over here you've got the Pentecostal folks and over here you've got the conservative folks and they make faces at each other in church. It's like, yeah, well they stood up. I saw some of you free this morning to worship. Praise God. But how many people, well, you know, they're just making a show. That's not from their heart. You know you're thinking it. There's some of you in here that are doing that. And then the church gives God a black eye because we can't get along with each other. And then finally, we are supposed to be walking in victory. Amen? He has set us free from the bondage of sin and its penalty, which is death. We're victorious. We're overcomers. If you're with us in our study on Thursday nights in the book of Revelation, there's crowns to be offered for those of you who overcome. Amen? We're not losers, we're winners. 
And yet a lot of the church looks like a bunch of losers. Because we're all wandering around. Well, you know, I you know, just see, can't seem to get a handle on this. That's because it's in the flesh. It's not in the spirit. And so we're wandering around. We're not representing the Lord. And so Paul is going to really take us on a journey here in these next three chapters. To get us walking. You see, here's why. It matters what you believe, folks. It matters what you believe. Because your doctrine will dictate your duty. You will live what you actually believe. And so if you're not living it, you might ask yourself a real simple question. Do you actually believe it? Because if I believe something, I actually live it out. In the intelligence community, if you're in here and you're in upper level law enforcement, you're involved, maybe you're here and you're in the CIA, we don't want to know because we don't want you to have to kill us. <laughs> there's things that we kind of sort of know, and there's, there's what's called actionable intelligence. That intelligence is so deep and so pervasive that we launch a drone strike to take out a terrorist. Because we know that dude did it. We got the satellite photos. It is truth. Your Bible is actionable intelligence. It's truth. You're supposed to act on it. You're supposed to take it out into the world and go live it. That means your body actually is the temple of the Lord. That is, you are supposed to live as sinlessly as is possible with you. That means you love your brother. That means that wherever you go, Jesus is supposed to go with you. So if Jesus won't go where you're going, maybe you ain't supposed to be going where you're going. Maybe that movie you're going to watch, you ought to think twice about, because Jesus is not happy about sitting next to you. You see, we're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to have unity that comes from within. Not uniformity that comes from without. You see, the world is trying to press us into its mold right now. And Christ is saying, look, it's Christ in you that's your hope of glory. It is not becoming like the world or more tolerant to sin. It is you standing up and saying, my Savior says thus and so. My Bible says this, and that's the way I'm going to live my life. And so that gives us unity. That draws us together. All of a sudden, my Lord is your Lord. Your Lord is my Lord. We believe the same things. And then consequently, we act the same way. doesn't mean that we become little religious clones, you know, from the planet Calvary Chapel. I wouldn't be any other pastor anywhere else. I love Calvary Chapel, but we do not have a market on Christianity. Amen? There are lots of other people who love the Lord Jesus, and we're going to differ on little things. You're not going to heaven because you believe in a literal six-day creation. I happen to believe that God created the universe, everything in it, in six literal days. But whether you think that's billions of years, when we get to heaven, God will square you away. Maybe, or me. You're not going to get to heaven because you think, or I think, that you're going to have to go through the tribulation. I think my Bible clearly says that there's going to be a rapture and we're out of here. 
You're not going to heaven because you believe in the rapture. You're going to heaven because of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you from all unrighteousness. Amen? So if we disagree on some non-essential part of doctrine, though I believe I can make an absolutely wonderful case for a literal six-day creation, I believe I can make an absolutely wonderful case for the rapture of the church, if I'm wrong, okay, then I'm going to be here for the tribulation. If I'm right, I'm not going to be here, and neither are you, and you can thank me when we get there. But not so about the things we're supposed to be under the moral law that is the character of Christ. You see, a lot of the church has missed an opportunity here. Because a lot of the church doesn't have an answer for why gay marriage is wrong. Because when asked, usually it goes something like this. Why is gay marriage wrong? And people will say, because my Bible says so. That is the wrong answer. That happens to be a truth, but it's the wrong answer. Because the real answer is, science says so, socioeconomic issues say so, my Bible absolutely says so. Furthermore, what you believe should affect how you act. And so if you actually believe these things, let me tell you what my Bible actually says. Because the first thing they'll tell you is, well, you Christians shouldn't be eating shellfish. You Christians, uh, you shouldn't be eating pork. Well, I happen to love ribs along with my shrimp. (laughs) So they look at me and they go, well, you're a hypocrite. I'm going, no, that's not the way it works. Because you have confused the ceremonial law, which died at the cross of Christ, and is no longer applicable to me. See, this is the answer. That died, but God's character didn't change. So when he said a man should not lie with a woman, that's the moral, or a man with a, another man as he lies with a woman, that's part of the moral law. That did not change. That's built into us as humanity. The other part was how the Jewish people related to God. And he said, look, you're not under the law anymore, but under grace. And so now we live in that time where we can simply live these things out and let somebody examine my life to see if I'm a hypocrite. But I've got to have answers for people. That comes from his word. That's why we gather together and study it. I want to give you six necessary graces. You see, as you look at these first three verses, you see six things. The first one is lowliness or humility. The Lord, can you imagine what he, was, what he gave up when he came here? Jesus came to this earth as a child, but he left the glories of heaven. He's been creator God from the beginning. In the beginning was God. And the word was with God. And the word, which is Jesus, by the way, was God. Jesus has always been. But he was born a child. But he was still God. And so he humbled himself, came to this earth. He didn't look at the earth like you and I would. We go on Verbo. We're looking for a vacation home, right? Honey, come look at this. This is the nicest dump I've ever seen. Let's go here. Compared to heaven, the earth's a dump, amen? But Jesus came anyway because he loves us. 
He put up all the glories of heaven, said, I love my people more than I hate their sin. I hate their sin, but I love them more than I hate their sin. So in lowliness, he came to earth. In meekness, he was God. Can you imagine what, what he could have done standing before Pontius Pilate? Think about it for a second. He is fully God. And fully God, he could have done anything he wanted. Uh, Father, could you send me like 65,000 legions of angels? Because I'm kind of done with this whole thing. <laughs> and yet, what did he say? He answered not in his own defense... And then when he's nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's power under control. Nobody could have touched Jesus unless he let them. Allied with that is meekness, which is really long-suffering, being worked out. You know, some of us can suffer, but none of us suffer very long. Amen? I'm... Just don't shop with me. It's best. I, was, I, I go to Home Depot. I always get the guy who's been in the, in the plumbing section getting garden stuff for his... And he, he, I, I don't know what they do, but they grab plastic plumbing parts that are like four cents a piece, and they put 13,000 of them in their basket. They have no idea how many are in there, and they get to check out, and I'm always behind that guy. Always. And what goes through my mind is, didn't you have a list of how many of those you want? So aren't there 250,000 of one? Or the, couldn't you just tell her that? And so they scan every single one individually. Oh, I think I forgot the... We have to do it over. And after about the third time, I'm, I'm pretty much... Well, I can't say what I am because it's not good. But I'm a little impatient at that time. You, you see, we don't suffer very long. And we certainly don't do the fourth thing here, to forbear, which means to be kind while you're suffering. That's what Jesus did. That's the character we're supposed to have here. And we're to endeavor to do it. It should be your mission. I want, to be like, I want to be humble. I want to be meek. I want to be long-tempered. I want to do that well, and I want to be kind. I want to be nice while I'm going through difficult things. And the result of that, the end of that, is that the peace of God rules in your heart. Just, just as Colossians chapter 3 reminds us. The peace of God is baseball season. We're about to make the all-star break. The peace of God, in essence, rules your heart. It's the same exact word that we would translate umpire. Calls the balls and strikes. Well, that's outside of the zone. That's inside the zone. That's high. That's low. God, from his point of view, can look at everything in your life, and he knows what it is. Is it a ball? Is it a strike? The peace of God does that. So when you don't have peace, God's telling you, it's out of the zone. Don't swing at it. We get that because we have sound doctrine. And he finishes this way, and we'll review some of this a little bit of it next week. But let's end with this. Verse 4, it says, And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through you all and in you all. 
You see what he's saying with all of this is these things worked out in you, that truth that is communicated by his word, lived out by you, leaves all of us in the same exact body, with the same exact Lord, with the same exact Spirit working in us, that one baptism of the Spirit in our lives that's working in each of us, accomplishing his individual purposes in your life and the corporate purpose for which he's gathered us together. And so as you think on these things, there is grounds for the unity that we have in Christ. There is a foundation, and it's truth. It's that actionable intelligence. You see, for you, for me, for us, Paul didn't discuss all this spiritual unity stuff until he laid the foundation of truth. He says, you've got to know what you're being true to before you can be true to it. You get sworn into the military. You swear to defend the Constitution of the United States of America. You kind of need to know what the Constitution is before you can be sworn in, don't you? Well, I don't know what it is. You just make it up in your head? No. And the same is true when you say yes to Jesus. You're supposed to then endeavor to know what his word says so that when you say yes to him, it doesn't mean that you come to faith by knowledge, but because you're a child of God, Lord, tell me who you are. Let me act as you want me to act. Let me live out my faith. Let me not make up my own realities about you. Let me be who you really made me to be. We can't just forget our doctrine and say we love each other so it's all okay. And so in that, he gives us some very simple things that we can leave with today. We'll enumerate them a little bit better next week. But he says, look, here's, here's the deal. You're in one body. There's really, as I've shared with you already, as we began this book, there's exactly one church effectively in the world. There are many representations of that one church. Some of them are called Calvary Chapel, some of them are called Baptist Church, some of them Presbyterian, Lutheran Church. There's all kinds of churches. And in those churches, there are people who love the Lord Jesus. And we're supposed to be part of one body. There's also what happens to you when you get saved is each one of you has been given the guarantee of your salvation. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is in you as a believer. So there's one spirit. There's one hope. Praise God for that hope. One day heaven. Amen? Because if all there is to life is this, man, what a bummer deal. Because not everybody gets their stuff made right here on this earth. There are people who die every single day without ever tasting of a single good thing. I've, I've ministered to them in, in the favelas in Brazil. People beyond poor have nothing. And they die poor. But praise God for the glories of heaven. Because here, maybe you're here for a hundred years. As I said before, that's because God doesn't like you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Your Bible says if by reason of strength you make it to 70, 80. So beyond that, there's something special about your life. But the bottom line is you're not going to be here for more than maybe 100 and what is it now? I think the oldest person on earth is 116. 160. Why would you want to be here at 116 years old? You've got to borrow someone else's teeth. 
But there is a hope, and it's not here, it's there. Amen? Kind of the great equalist. There's one Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He's the master. He can take care of your stuff, your things, your issues. You. He can even take care of those wayward family members. Those, those kids that you've been praying for for your whole life. And you're wondering, I know I raised you better than this. There's one Lord. There's one faith. It's defined by the Bible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Memorize it. There's one baptism. He's not talking about being dunked. He's talking about the spirit being in you. Let me tell you why I know that. There's one guy in the entire Bible explaining the whole thing for you. The thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Did he get baptized? Negative. But he did get baptized with the Spirit. He didn't get dunked. Jesus didn't mysteriously take him down off the cross, take him to the Jordan River, and baptize him. You're not saved by baptism. When you're saved, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And there's one God and one Father. A Father to all of us spiritually. And I pray that we cling to our dad. Because like never before in our history, we need our Heavenly Father to step in for us. So as we see this amazing unity, and we'll do part two next week, I pray that we'll lay hold of these truths and take them as as such, and then go into our world and not walk as hypocrites, but let the world see what it really means to be unified in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this day, God, when we can just cry out to you and say, Lord, change us, mold us, work in our lives from the inside out. Cause us to know your word and to live in it, to walk it, not just talk it. Father, so grateful for your love for us. Lord, that you first loved us will never cease to be amazing while we're here on this earth. God, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll understand it. Right now, we don't. And so, Lord, we give you our lives afresh and anew. Lord, help us to be unified. Help us to walk so tightly with you that the world takes notice of the character of Jesus shining out of us as we live out our lives on this earth. Lord, we're grateful. Pray that there's anybody here who's never made that commitment to you. Lord, we have people waiting to pray. Lord, we'd love to give them a Bible. We'd love to share that marvelous plan of salvation. And so, God, we delight, Lord, in what you're going to do with us this week. We look forward to gathering together. And if we should not make it, Lord, if you should come for your church, we are just looking forward to that day when we're home. So God bless us. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen and amen.